please make sure you've got those Bibles in hand. They look like this if it's been a while since you've seen one. Make sure you have your Bibles there with you along with your message notes from the bulletin. Uh, We encourage you to have the pen and the message notes out so you can fill in some blanks, jot down some notes as we dive into God's Word today. We're going to be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 in just a few minutes. I have a question for you. How many of you are parents or grandparents? One or the other, okay? Wonderful. Keep your hands up if you are actually proud of your kids and grandkids. Okay, I don't see quite as many hands. What's going on here? Are you proud of your kids and grandkids? Amen. Let me ask you, do you have proof? Some of you do. Some of you who are on social media, you've posted like 100 fresh pictures of your kids and grandkids in just the last week. Some of you may have uh, pictures that you've posted of your little grandson playing t-ball. Maybe he looks a lot like this little kid here. I love this picture, man. He's got the tongue going. He's going all full on Michael Jordan on this swing right here. And some of you maybe posted some pictures of your young daughters playing dress-up. Maybe they looked a little bit like this. Cute as can be. You're proud of your kids, aren't you? You're proud of your grandkids. How many of you are proud of Jesus? You're proud to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Amen? How many of you are proud of your church? Proud to tell people, I attend Impact Christian Church. Why are we proud of this church? Because we teach the Word of God. Because God has brought us here and he's feeding us and he's blessing us and we can be a blessing to others while we're here. God has given us this wonderful opportunity to be a part of a church family. I love the fact that many of you are premeditated in how you share the message about impact with others. Some of you put a bumper sticker on the back of your car and you're driving around town hoping someone sees it at the red light. Impact Christian Church and they'll go online and check it out and come the next Sunday. Some of you have the yard sign out in your front yard, and so as your neighbor's driving by, they see that sign day after day, and they think, you know what, I've been looking for a good church home. My neighbor goes there. Maybe I'll check it out. And then some of you, you make sure you're always packing, right? Back pocket, guys, purse, or in your glove compartment, ladies. It's really important to be packing because one thing I love about having these with me every day is it takes some premeditation. When I get up in the morning, I'm getting dressed. I'm thinking I need to make sure I have some cards in my pocket because I don't know who I'm going to run into that day. But I'm going expectantly out into the world thinking God may give me an opportunity to share his love with somebody or invite somebody to church. And so just as we prepare ourselves to be a blessing and to do God's work, as we get to John chapter 14 here, Jesus is continuing to prepare and equip his disciples for what's up ahead. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be arrested and beaten and crucified. He'll no longer be with his disciples in the flesh. So they're going to have to carry on his great work of ministry without him. At this pivotal moment, they're not yet ready to do that. But when the time comes and the Holy Spirit will descend upon them and empower them for ministry, they will be ready. Amen. And I believe one of the reasons they're ready is because of what Jesus teaches them here in John chapter 14. So make sure you're there in your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 1 of John chapter 14. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Isn't that a great passage? We're going to stop there before we continue and 
Let's allow those verses to sink into our minds and hearts today. Here in John 14, Jesus is still in the upper room at the Last Supper with his disciples, at least with 11 of them. Remember what happened in the last chapter? The the devil, Satan, filled Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray Jesus. And as soon as the devil entered Judas Iscariot, he stood up from the table and he left the room. And he left the house where they were having the Last Supper. So as we get to chapter 14, Jesus is down to 11 apostles. Uh, That's a pretty good track record. He kept 11 out of 12. Amen. But a few few, uh, hours later, all of them are going to head for the hills. But at least for now, he's still got 11. And Jesus can tell that his disciples' hearts are troubled. They're agitated and confused. They're anxious and they're worried. And for good reason. Think about what Jesus had revealed to them in the past chapter, particularly the last half of chapter 13. Back in verse 21 of chapter 13, we read that Jesus himself was troubled in spirit. As he dropped a bombshell, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Certainly the disciples could tell that Jesus was anxious and uneasy, so they picked up on that and they were anxious and uneasy. They wanted to know who this betrayer is. Who's going to betray you, Jesus? And by the time we get to the end of chapter 13, Jesus has dropped a few more bombshells that make his disciples even more anxious and and more worried. In verse 26, Jesus identifies his trusted treasurer, Judas Iscariot, as the one who's going to betray him. In verse 33, Jesus tells the disciples that very soon he'll be leaving them, and where he goes, they can't follow. And then he ends the chapter by, in verse 38, telling his lead apostle, Simon Peter, that by the end of the night, Simon Peter won't simply deny him one time, not even just two times, but three times he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. So were the disciples' hearts troubled? You better believe their hearts were troubled. And Jesus knew this. So reclining there at the table in the upper room, every one of these 11 men must have been a nervous wreck. Nothing Jesus had been saying made any sense to them. It was all over their heads. How could Judas, our trusted treasurer, ever betray Jesus? That didn't make any sense to them. How could Peter, the guy who had stood up and said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who had been one of only three apostles there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured with Moses and Elijah, Peter was one of the only three that saw that. Peter was the only apostle who had ever walked on water, temporarily, but at least he walked on water. How could the great, big, bold Peter ever deny Jesus even once, let alone three times? And then Jesus says, I'm going somewhere and you can't come with me. They were just so worried. And that last one was probably what worried them the most. Their hearts were most troubled by this notion that Jesus Christ was leaving them, and they couldn't go with him. Think about it. Jesus' disciples had left everything to follow him. They'd left their jobs and their families. They'd risked their lives repeatedly over the past three years to stick by Jesus' side. And now he was leaving them to go who knows where to do who knows what. How on earth could the disciples not have troubled hearts? Well, according to Jesus, the remedy for their troubled hearts is trust. Say that word with me. Trust. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Here in John 14, 1, Jesus reveals a beautiful, simple truth. The secret to having a heart at peace is to simply trust God. 
Without a doubt, there will be times when your circumstances don't make sense to you and God's plans and timing don't make sense to you and it feels like your world is crashing down around you. It's at those times when you have to return to the well of living water and remember that He has called you to trust God. Trust God. Some of you may be like me at a young age, memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And if you haven't memorized that yet, I encourage you to do it today. Because there will be times in your life when you're going through some stuff and you need to remember these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Or as the old King James puts it, He will make, He will direct your paths. He'll direct your paths. Jesus speaks to His Worried disciples here in John 14, verse 1, and he speaks to us worried disciples today. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Say that with me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, F.F. Bruce reminds us that Jesus Christ has proven himself to be trustworthy time and time again. I love how Bruce puts it. He says it this way. If we can get that on the screen, please. There we go. The disciples had never known Jesus to let them down. He would not do so now, whatever appearances might suggest. Look at that first part again. The disciples had never known Jesus to let them down. Do you know you could replace the word disciples with the pronoun I and that pronoun them with the pronoun me? I have never known Jesus to let me down. Say that with me. I have never known Jesus to let me down. I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been through a lot of stuff. I've lifted up a lot of prayers. I've called out to God many, many times. And I can tell you I've never known a time in my entire life when Jesus Christ has ever let me down. He's never let me down. He's never let me down. doesn't matter what I've been through. doesn't matter what I was experiencing. He never let me down. The same is true for you. I don't know what you're going through, but whatever you're going through, I promise you he will never let you down. If you will lean on Him, He'll never disappoint you. He'll never let you down. He won't give you everything you ask for. We'll talk about that a little bit later in this passage today. But He will never let you down. That was true 2,000 years ago in the upper room, and it's just as true for us in this room today. Whatever appearances might suggest, Jesus Christ will never let you down. You can trust Him. You should trust Him. No matter what you see with your eyes, no matter what you hear with your ears, no matter what you uh, take hold of with your senses, no matter what you feel, the truth is Jesus Christ will never let you down. Are you going to trust your five senses or are you going to trust his trustworthiness? I, for one, am going to trust his trustworthiness. Jesus goes on to say in verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms, Many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Here Jesus makes it clear that his destination is heaven. That's what the term my father's house means. If there's any doubt in your mind about what Jesus means, you don't need to have any doubt. He's talking about heaven. My father's house is heaven. He's saying he's going to prepare a place for us. What a marvelous thing for him to say. Here Jesus makes it clear that his destination is heaven. 
And the old King James kind of steers us a little wrong in this part. Many of you memorized this verse early on. In my father's house are many mansions is how the King James puts it. That's not the best translation there. The word Jesus uses here doesn't best translate into English as mansions. It better translates as rooms or dwelling places. And so the problem with thinking of mansions is it it sends a lot of Christians out on a rabbit trail thinking that, uh, you know, I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to have a bigger mansion than you have. And I'm going to have four floors. You only got three. And that sister over there, whoo, she's got issues, man. She's just got the basement. That's a basement uh, mansion she's got. And so it sent some Christians off on some rabbit trails. So that's not completely unwarranted because the Jews in Jesus' day, to a large extent, did believe that there were different size rooms that were given to different Jews based on merit. So remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife at all. So the Sadducees didn't believe in heaven, but the Pharisees did. And so many Pharisees believe that there was this apportionment of rooms in heaven, dwelling places in heaven based on merit. And so they believed that some of them would have uh, in this enormous palace of God a wing of that palace that was huge if they had been faithful Jews all their lives. They'd gone to synagogue every week like they were supposed to, and they performed thousands upon thousands of good works over their lifetimes. And so it was kind of like this in, in the Jewish mind. If someone just went to uh, synagogue once in a while and they did the bare minimum that God had asked them to do, and they didn't do very many good works, Uh, when they got to that great palace in heaven, uh, they would be given maybe a Motel 6 size room. You know, it's okay. Uh, The air conditioning works once in a while, but it's not great. But if you were faithful to God your entire life, you were a true blue Jew, you did everything you were supposed to do. I didn't know that part would rhyme. Okay. So anyway, you did everything you were supposed to do. You were faithful to God then you would get like a Ritz-Carlton presidential suite-sized room in God's palace in heaven. So many Jews believe that, but is that what Jesus is getting at here? I don't think so. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is plenty of room, plenty of room in heaven for all of my followers. Don't be afraid. In this world, people will slam doors in your face and kick you to the curb, but in heaven, you as my followers will never be shut out. Isn't that good news? You'll never be shut out in heaven. Long before the days of reserving hotel rooms or motel rooms on Travelocity or on Expedia, uh, many of you remember that what you would do on a vacation, you'd drive down the street where all the motels were, and you would just look for that sign in the front window. You didn't make a reservation ahead of time. You drive and you look for those signs. Either it says vacancy or no vacancy, right? So if it says no vacancy, in other words, there's no room that's open and available that night, you don't need to get out of your car. You don't even need to pull into the parking lot. You just keep driving down the street and you find another motel, right? Isn't it encouraging to know that God never hangs a no vacancy sign up there in heaven? I feel bad for the Jehovah's Witnesses for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons I feel really bad for them is they think there's actually a limited number of spots in heaven. They have twisted one of the verses in Revelation, and they say there are only 144,000 spots available in heaven. And here we are, 150 years after the JW organization was founded, and sorry, all the 144,000 spots are taken. So if you are a good JW, uh, you're going to have to settle for a paradise earth because God hung that no vacancy sign in heaven, and you can't get there. How sad to go through life 
thinking that there's no chance of you to go to heaven because God hath a limited spot, spots available. And then Jesus just makes it so clear here. In my Father's house are many rooms. In other words, there is plenty of room for every single one of his followers, and he will never run out of room. Warren Wearsby makes this great point about verse 3. He says, John 14, 3 is a clear promise of our Lord's return for his people. Some will go to heaven through the valley of the shadow of death, but those who are alive when Jesus returns will never see death. They will be changed to be like Christ and will go to heaven. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't have to worry about death. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't have to worry about dying. I don't have to worry about the afterlife. I don't have to worry as a follower of Christ if I'm going to heaven or hell. Because Jesus has got this, right? He's got this. Where am I going? I'm going to heaven. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. You don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about dying. You don't have to worry about where you're going. You're going to heaven if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful, encouraging truth that is. So whether I die or whether I'm raptured, either way, I'm going to heaven. If this physical body dies, no big deal. I'm going to heaven. If Jesus comes back before this physical body dies, no big deal. I'm going to heaven. Either way, he's got me covered. And he goes on in verse 4 to continue his great teaching. And this sets us up for one of the most beautiful and powerful verses in the whole New Testament. Starting in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, "Uh, Lord, (laughs) uh, uh, we don't know where you're going. uh, So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Huh. In verse 4, Jesus sets the table for the gold mine of truth that he reveals in verse 6. Jesus knows that his teaching about the Father's house is over his apostles' heads. He's no stranger to that truth. He knows they're not wrapping their heads around it. But nonetheless, he makes this interesting statement in verse 4 anyway. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Is, is Jesus kind of playing with them a little bit? He, he knows they have no clue. But he says, you know, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Well, doubting Thomas responds in verse 5, Excuse me, Jesus, just a second. Uh, we have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we know the way to where you're going if we don't even know where you're going? And then Jesus, as Thomas has set the table, he responds in verse 6, one of the most powerful, most theologically rich verses in the entire New Testament. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How was Jesus able to say in verse 4, that his disciples knew the way to where he was going. He was able to say it because it was true. They just didn't know it. Unbeknownst to the 11 apostles, they knew the way to heaven because they knew Jesus, right? And that's true for you and me as well. Everyone who knows Jesus knows the way to heaven. Isn't that encouraging? Someone asked me, Pastor, what direction is heaven? I don't know if heaven's that way, that way, that way, or that way, but it don't matter because I'm following Jesus, and he's got it all covered, right? So I know the way to heaven because I know him. Isn't that cool? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know the way to heaven as long as you know 
him. Just last Sunday, uh, we had a wonderful little Valentine's lunch for our widows at my house. Christine and I hosted it last week. We had a half a dozen widows come out. We had a good old time. Uh, But Lily was one of the ladies that wanted to come, and she approached me uh, last Sunday and said, hey, can I get directions to your house? And I said, sure. And I realized at that moment I had a couple options. I could say, okay, Lily, I want you to come out of the parking lot here and and turn right on Kamana. And then take an immediate right on the next street here, Siskiyou. Then I want you to go down to the second stop sign and take a right. And then you go one block to the next stop sign and take a left. And then you drive a mile and a half. There's one street out there. Take a right. And you'll find my house three and a half miles up on the left-hand side. Okay, we'll see you there. If I had given Lily those directions, here we are a week later, she'd still be lost driving around Apple Valley, right? So what did I do? I said, Lily, just follow me. Just follow me. And so I was coming out of the parking lot here, and I look in my rearview mirror, and what do I see right behind me? I see Lily's car. She's she's hot on my tail. And I turn right, and then I turn right onto Siskiyou. I look in my rearview mirror. There's Lily. I turn onto Corwin. There's Lily. I turn onto Walu. There's Lily. I get all the way to my house, and who's right behind me? She was hugging my bumper so close, man, we almost had an accident. It was great. She was hot on my tail. As long as she was following me, she knew the way. As long as she was following me, she didn't have to worry a bit about how to get to my house. And isn't it the same with Jesus? As long as you're following him... You don't have to worry. Your heart doesn't have to be troubled. That's how Jesus works. He leads you there. Oh, you don't need to memorize a bunch of complicated directions to know the way to heaven. You simply need to know Jesus. He is the way to heaven. As long as you're following him, you don't have to worry. You will make it. Remember that in the Gospel of John, John records for seven great I am statements that reveal his majesty. He reveals the first one in John 6.35 when he says, I am the bread of life. Then he reveals in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. And in John chapter 10, he reveals that he is the gate for the sheep and that he is the good shepherd. And then in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then here in John 14.6, he gives us the sixth of the seven I am statements. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when you and I meditate on Jesus' words here in John 14, 6, it really is mind-blowing when you think about it. But believe me when I say that as mind-blowing as it is for us, as Gentile Christians in the 21st century to meditate on these words, it would have absolutely knocked the socks off of the Jews in Jesus' day. If it blows you away, it would blow them away even more. Because as you look at the Old Testament, you see that the Jews focus to a very large extent on the way, the truth, and the life. That was central to Judaism. It was central to the Old Testament. A few quick examples. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 29, Moses, before he died, he had led people to the edge of the promised land as he had led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And he leads them to the edge of the promised land. And before he dies, he gives them one final pep talk. And in Deuteronomy 31, 29, he urges them not to turn from the way that God had commanded them to live. And then you look at Psalm 86, verse 11. King David, the man after God's own heart, cries out to God in that psalm, and he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. And then Moses, once again in his final speech in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he tells the Israelites, I have set before you life 
and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So clearly the way and the truth and the life were prominent themes in the Old Testament. The Jewish people who loved God and desired to please God were determined to know the ways of God and to walk in the truth of God and as a result to experience the life of God. And Jesus turns to Thomas here in John 14, 6, and he says, Thomas, guess what? I'm all three. <laughs> all your life you've studied about the way to God. All your life you've studied the truth from God's word. All your life you've longed for that eternal life that only God could offer you. And I'm here to tell you, I am all three. I am the way and the truth. And the life. Perhaps no one has communicated the power of this revelation in John 14, 6 any better than the 15th century Christian leader, Thomas A. Kempis. In the last 500 years, I don't think it's been said any better than this guy said it. He said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. If thou remain in my way, thou shalt know the truth, and the truth shall make thee free, and you shall take hold of eternal life. I especially love those first few lines. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Amen? Say that with me. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Isn't that great? Isn't that powerful? That's powerful. Many skeptics take issue with what Jesus says here in John fourteen six. From a human perspective, Jesus is excluding all Jews, all Muslims, all Buddhists, all Hindus, and all non-religious people from heaven, no matter how good or devout they may live. To our modern ears, it doesn't just sound exclusive, it sounds offensively exclusive. But from a biblical perspective, Jesus Christ is the most inclusive religious leader in history. Think about it. Through Christ, any Jew can be saved and go to heaven. Any Muslim can be saved and go to heaven. Any Buddhist, any Hindu, any Jehovah's Witness, any Mormon, any Wiccan, any atheist, any agnostic, anyone can be saved and go to heaven if, if they trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. No matter what your religious background is, you can turn from your sin and turn from your false religion and turn to Jesus Christ and experience eternal life. There isn't one way for Jews to make it to heaven and another way for Muslims to make it to heaven. There's only one way to heaven, and that one way is Jesus Christ. He makes himself available to anyone who will trust in him as Savior and Lord, turn from their sin and follow him. You see, Jesus is the way. There's not a truth about knowing God for Mormons and another truth about knowing God for Jehovah's Witnesses. There's only one truth about knowing God, and his name is Jesus because you see, Jesus is the truth. And there isn't a ticket to eternal life through Hinduism and a different ticket to eternal life through Buddhism and yet another ticket to eternal life through Scientology. There's only one ticket to eternal life and his name is Jesus because Jesus is the life. Therefore, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Hmm. Let's pick up in verse 7. John 14, beginning in verse 7. If you really knew me, Thomas, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show me the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the father and the father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Well, ever since the days of Moses, God's people have longed to get a glimpse of God. Even though they knew that no one could look at the face of God and live, Moses longed to look at God, and so on one very special occasion, God, in a sense, turned his back to Moses and passed by beside the mountain so that Moses could get a glimpse of at least part of God's glory. Huh. It's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. We long to look at the face of God. Philip expresses this longing in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Somehow the truth Jesus had been teaching hadn't registered. Here in John 14, verses 9 and 10, Jesus basically says, Philip, how can you say, show me the Father? Isn't that exactly what I've been doing these past three years? Every time you've heard me speak, you've heard this Father speak because I say exactly what he would say if he were here in my sandals. Every time you've seen me at work, you've seen the Father at work because I do exactly what he would do if he were here in my place. And if you know me, you also know God the Father, because to know me is to know Him. Friends, the only way to know God is to know Jesus, because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Therefore, if you reject Jesus, whether you realize it or not, you are rejecting God the Father. It's one of the main reasons why people who are mixed up in cults and false religions are in danger of the fire of hell. When you reject one, by default, you reject both. So when Jehovah's Witness leaders teach their people that Jesus is none other than the archangel Michael, a created angel from God, even when they don't realize it, they are teaching their people to reject God the Father. Because a stripped-down version of God is no longer God. You take Jesus away, you no longer have the Trinity, you no longer have the one true God. Same with Mormons. Mormon leaders teach their people that Jesus Christ was birthed by God and his spirit wife on some planet out there. They teach their people that Jesus is actually the brother of Lucifer. They strip down God, and without even realizing it, they're teaching their people to reject God the Father. It's sad. Every Jehovah's Witness and every Mormon who follows their blind guides will be lost in eternity unless they repent and trust in the one and only Savior of the world, the one and true 
Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ provides the way for any person on earth to be saved. It's only when people choose to reject the Jesus of Scripture and replace him with a cheap substitute that they are self-condemned. Because as Peter shared with the Jewish leaders in Acts 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. Amen? There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Read that with me. Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Which leads us to Jesus' teaching in verses 12 through 14. Jesus tells his 11 apostles that after he returns to heaven, they will do even greater things than what he himself had done. That's pretty remarkable for him to say that, right? He's the creator of the universe. And the creator of the universe says, you're going to do greater things than I did. That blows their minds, right? What's he mean? Well, he's saying when the Holy Spirit comes and fills them, and he himself is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, Jesus says, you will actually go more places on this earth than I went. You'll actually heal more sick people on earth than I ever healed. And you will actually lead more people to a saving knowledge of Christ than I ever personally led to a saving knowledge of Christ. Isn't that just mind-blowing? And it was all by design. What a humble Savior we have. He didn't say, well, you guys better pray that you do half of the good stuff I did because you guys are pretty horrible. You guys really stink. I've seen, well, literally two guys, but I've seen some of that ministry you guys have done. A little rough around the edge. No, Jesus doesn't say any of that to him, does he? You're going to do greater things than even I did. As far as Jesus answering every one of their prayers, I don't want you to misunderstand or twist what Jesus is saying here. Because sadly, there are many people across our nation, any, even many pastors, even many pastors of large churches, some of them are on television, some of them are on the radio, who have completely twisted what Jesus says here about praying in his name and experiencing guaranteed answered prayer. Uh, Many are part of what we call the prosperity gospel. Sometimes we call it word of faith teaching. And those that peddle the prosperity gospel will say, in essence, that Jesus is like a genie in the lamp. And how do we rub the lamp? You rub it by praying in Jesus' name in faith, believing that what you ask for will be granted. So as long as you as a believer have enough faith in Jesus and you pray in Jesus' name, it's like you're rubbing that lamp. He'll give you whatever you ask for. You just name it and claim it. Right? You just name it and claim it. Folks, that's heresy. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 13 is the reason why he will give us what we ask for in his name. He answers our prayers in order. You see it? To bring glory to the Father. There are far too many Christians out there praying for their own glory and for their own selfish wish list to be fulfilled. God is no cosmic genie in the lamp. God is no Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator of the universe. He is in charge, not you. So your prayers must be for His glory, not for your own. Well, I want us to to tackle an important question here in closing. And the question goes like this. How can we pray in Jesus' name? 
We want that, don't we? We want to pray, as he said here, to pray in his name and see our prayers answered. So how do we pray in his name? I want to give you three biblical guidelines for praying in Jesus' name to see those prayers answered. Guideline number one, if you jot this down in your notes, begin your prayer. Begin your prayers with Jesus' interest in the forefront of your mind. Read that with me. Begin your prayers with Jesus' interest in the forefront of your mind. Uh, Most of us, when we start to pray, we've got this wish list kind of floating around in our head. Okay, I'm going to go through a few quick formalities, but basically I need him to heal my brother of cancer. I need him to help me pay the bills because I've got too many bills at the end of the month and not enough money to pay them. I need him to help me get a new job. I need gas in my tank, and I've got my kids going off the deep end. I've got some prayer requests. And so that's floating around our head, and so we go through some formalities so we can get to our wish list. We have to remember we need to begin with his interests in mind, not our own. Chuck Swindoll says it really well. He writes, More often than not, we do not pray in the interests of Jesus' plans. In our immaturity, we seek our own interests and for what will improve our situations. Jesus promised that as we discover the will of God and align our prayers to fulfill His purposes, our prayers will become as powerful as His own. Wow. How can we pray as powerfully as Jesus prayed? You begin with His interests in mind, not your own. Well, there's a second guideline I want to share with you. Read this with me. End your prayers with your will be done. I caught you off guard. Let's do it together now. End your prayers with your will be done. So we begin our prayers with the interests of Jesus in mind. And it stands to reason that we should also end our prayers with Jesus' will in mind, right? Remember the Lord's Prayer, a model prayer that he said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He said, begin your prayer by focusing on God. You want Him to be glorified. You want Him to be lifted up as holy and honored. Amen? Hallowed be your name. Begin your prayers with His interests in mind and His glory in mind. And then it's a good idea to end your prayers with that. As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, He had prayed for hours. He had toiled for hours. His sweat was like drops of blood. And He said, God, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me. In other words, these are my desires. These are my wants. These are my prayer requests. But he finishes it off by saying, but not my will, but but yours be done. A lot of times when I pray, and I'm not just making this up, I literally pray this. Oftentimes, I will paraphrase, not my will, but yours be done. I'll paraphrase it by saying this at the end of my prayers. God, if I have just prayed anything that is outside of your will, could you do me a favor and just scratch it? I'll literally pray that to him. God, if I have just prayed anything that's outside of your will, would you please just forget what I just prayed? Would you just erase it? Because ultimately I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. Begin your prayers and end your prayers with the will of God in mind. And that leads us to number three. Please say this with me. Pray what Jesus himself would pray for God the Father to be glorified in your life and in the lives of those around you. Oh, church, if you don't pray this regularly, I encourage you to pray this prayer. Oh, God, I so, so much want you to be glorified in my life. 
I want you to be glorified in my wife's life. I want you to be glorified in my kids' lives. I want you to be glorified in my grandkids' lives. And some Christians might stop me at that point and say, well, wait a minute, my grandkids aren't even saved yet. You better believe if God is glorified in their lives, they're going to get saved. Amen? Because that's the greatest glory is when He brings salvation to someone who is dead and dying in their sins without Him. Remember what we've learned in recent weeks, to glorify God means to characterize God. And so what are you praying when you say glorify yourself in my life and in the lives of my loved ones? You're saying, God, I want you to be characterized in my life and in their lives. I want to speak as you would speak. I want to act as you would act. I want to love as you would love. I want to forgive as you would forgive. If you were here right now in these sneakers of mine, I want to say what you would say. I want to do what you would do. And I want to pray what you would pray. That's what it means to pray in his name, to pray in his name. You are a servant of Jesus Christ, and you are a soldier for Jesus Christ. So as you live your life, say what he would say. As you live your life, do what he would do. And as you live your life, pray exactly what he would pray. Ultimately, that is what it means to pray in his name. To pray exactly what Jesus would pray to the Father if he were in your shoes. And you better believe that when you pray in a way that you are characterizing Jesus Christ and your family members are characterizing Jesus Christ, you better believe he will answer that prayer because God is all about bringing glory to the Godhead. And if that's your prayer, you can take it to the bank. He will answer that prayer each and every time. Why do our prayers malfunction? Because we're praying for our wants, our desires, our glory. He makes no promises to answer those prayer requests. But when you're aiming to glorify Him with Jesus Christ and His interests in mind, at the beginning, the end, and the middle of that prayer, you better believe He'll answer. Lord Jesus, we do come to You thanking You for the privilege of studying Your Word. Father, I, I, I feel today like we've just barely scratched the surface of this amazing passage. It's so deep. It's so rich. It's literally a, a spiritual gold mine of truth. We can just go all the way back to verse 1 and say, Oh, Lord, that's just amazing to think about, that we don't have to go through life worried. We can trust in you, Lord Jesus, and we can trust in the Father. You're completely trustworthy. We thank you, Jesus, that you have gone to heaven. Uh, We'd like to see you in the flesh here on earth, but it's better for us that you went back to heaven because you're preparing a place for us. Thank you for preparing that place, and I thank you that whether you rapture me or whether I die, either way I'm going to heaven because, Lord Jesus, you're my Savior and you're Lord of my life. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being the way, the truth, and the life. Lord Jesus, you are the way. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Thank you for being the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to trust in you and do what we do and say what we say and pray what we pray for the glory of the Father. Oh, Lord, help us to bring you glory and honor. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has never put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of their life, that today they would finally bow their knee to you and say, Lord Jesus, I don't know the way, I don't have the truth, and I will not experience eternal life unless you help me. So, Lord Jesus, I believe in you today as my Savior and Lord. I believe in you as the way, the truth, and the eternal life. 
I invite you into my life. Please forgive me my sins. And I promise to follow you every day of my life from now until you call me home to heaven. Be my Savior and be my Lord. And I will love and serve and follow you from this point forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.